Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. Rich, nice people. God, why can't you just be an asshole? <laughs> Damn you. They're like, I'm an asshole and I'm poor. This is true. I'm also an asshole. Alright, we're recording. Okay. Uh, I realized, um, I, so normally I try to, like, proofread some shit when I, you know, write these. Mm-hmm. Um, but now Grammarly's telling me I don't know how to spell. I'm dead. So I don't know if you want to move your microphone a little closer can to you, you, or you can scoot up to it just so the people can hear your lovely voice. Can you hear me now? Um, yeah. Good. <laughs> Remember those commercials? Uh, yeah. Fucking Verizon commercials. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Also, that's, you ever think about like how trifling the Verizon guy is? Yes. He was that Verizon <laughs> guy for years. Now he's working for Sprint. But I'm like, this. I don't know if this was a good marketing campaign because I still think, like, obviously he's still the Verizon guy. I'm not going to think of him as the Sprint guy. But yeah. Well, uh, welcome to this podcast we're recording. We're recording a podcast, if you were wondering. Yeah, the, we're recording a podcast, and that podcast is called This Is Gonna Sound Weird, the podcast where we talk about weird shit. Uh, spooky shit. Spooky shit. We're entering spooky season. Hell yeah. Taylor brought me a pumpkin sweet cream cold brew um, so that I'll continue to be friends with her. It was know. delicious. It was delicious. Uh, don't hate on us. You know what? I'm not a big fan of the pumpkin spice, but... I'm not either. Like, the pumpkin spice latte, I think it's too sweet, but the cold brew is that good amount of mm-hmm. coffee, a little bit of sweet. I highly recommend. Also, the pumpkin spice, the hot ones, mm-hmm. to me, it kind of has a weird, like, grass taste. Very, grass? It's got, like, a like a earthy taste, but not a good kind. Um, so, no. But the cold brew, banging. Cold brew. It's top tier. It is. But I'm Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Sydney. uh, And we're your host of this uh, very disorganized podcast. Uh, We're trying to get our shit together, but it's so hard. Not possible. (laughs) Never going to happen. If we get our shit together, then you won't listen anymore. That's true. Maybe. I think think y'all listen for the chaos. Because maybe y'all don't have enough chaos in your lives. Or you do have a lot of chaos, but you listen to this and you're like, at least I'm not as bad as those guys. (laughs) I feel that. Uh, Well, this episode, we are doing Hollywood murders. Hollywood murders. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Yeah, Tinseltown murders. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to come up with, like, something. But I was like, what's a word for murder that starts with T? Nothing. Can't, no, <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Um, I think you went first last week. Yes, so I did. So I'm going to go first this week. I don't. So not everything's about you, Taylor. Yes, Everything. it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can't, I cannot argue with this. No, you cannot. I am now a four weeks a lawyer, so I can argue the crap out of this. Well, so, let's why, go. Why don't you fuck off? Because I'm two weeks a salesperson. Oh damn it! So <laughs> I'm scared um, of salespeople. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna close on you, bitch. I'm going first. Fine. I'll allow it for now. <laughs> Sustained. Order in the court. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm just gonna get right into mine. Uh, I'm gonna tell you who I'm doing it on, but I'm gonna I'm not gonna explain who the fuck this person is, just because we'll get to that. What if I know them? already I'll, I'll allow it i'll allow it so i am doing the murder of phil hartman are yeah. you familiar no do you know who that is i feel like no actually i'm not yeah. even gonna so say why, i think why i why do don't you fuck off then <laughs> all right my sources we're gonna condense it this week i only used two sources okay i had a busy week i didn't have time to just go with everything okay so you're shitting out on this podcast already <laughs> Yes. Um, anyways, put it on the back burner, so to speak. <laughs> um, my sources, Wikipedia. No one is surprised. No, not surprised. No surprise. Uh, and then my other one is this ABC news documentary called The Last Days of Phil Hartman. Um, now, you can watch the first four to five parts on YouTube. 
they did not upload the rest of the parts. Well, so damn, you gonna have to. I, that's why I had to use Wikipedia for the rest of oh. it because it gave a really good overview of just like his life. But oh, then yeah. like the last part, the uh, probably most important part, probably the most important part, <laughs> his his uh death. Oh. They they didn't upload that. So let's get right into it. So Phil Hartman was born in Bradford, Ontario, Canada. And at age 10, his family moved to the United States. He graduated high school, but in high school, he was known as the class clown. You know, he was well-liked. Mm. He was a funny gal. You know, he was... <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm a funny gal. He was a funny guy. What is wrong with me? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think she, I think that cold brew's gone straight to her brain. <laughs> it's gone right to it. It was the pumpkin spice. So, he was the class clown. And after graduating high school, he attended Saint Santa Monica City College to study art. However, once he got to California, you know, it's the 60s. Mm. He's really fallen into that beach kid lifestyle. He He's blowing off classes. He's going surfing. He's smoking weed. You know, he's really just living his best beach boys lifestyle. So... Uh, he liked to spend his time smoking weed, obviously, so he wasn't prioritizing school. And in 1969, Phil dropped out of college to become a roadie for his brother's rock band. The rock band was called the Rockin' Foo. <laughs> uh, and so he would go on tour with them, and he would just, you know, like, help out, you know, tune up the guitars, things like that. Mm. And he was meeting big stars like Jimi Hendrix. So, you know, he's really, like... He's, I don't know, he's living, like, his best now. He was living his best 60s lifestyle, now he's living his best 70s lifestyle. Why would you, I mean, why would you want to go to college if you can do that? Exactly, exactly. So, at that time, Phil meets Gretchen Lewis and falls madly in love with her. Would you marry in 1972? And this is a theme that you will see throughout Phil's life, is that Phil could fall in love with someone very quickly, and he would fall very hard. Mm. However... He would very, he would like kind of lose interest very quickly. Oh. Like they would fall in love, he'd be head over heels with her, and then the second they get married, it was like, eh. <laughs> Damn. Um, so he wouldn't be able to hold on to that loving feeling for long. So obviously, that marriage crumbles. Okay. But the same year that he gets married to Gretchen, he returns to school to study graphic arts at California State University of Northridge. Once graduating, Philip begins his own graphic art business, creating more than 40 album covers for bands that his, brother's ma- that his brother managed. Because his brother was in a band, but he was also, like, managing different bands. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, like, got him that connection be like, you're really good at graphic design. Would you like to do an mm-hmm. art cover? And so some of the covers that he did included Poco's Legend album, which is, like, a, it's very simple. It's, like, a white with, like, a silhouette of this, like, stallion horse. Um. And then America's Silent Letter album. And if you're wondering, like, you know, maybe who America the band is, mm-hmm. they sing, like, um, on a horse with no name in the desert. Maybe. Da, na, na. You, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. Like, a couple episodes. In, like, season one, they feel like they played a lot of America um, because it's, like, him walking through the desert about to cook some math. <laughs> um, it, it's very, like, I don't, because they literally I'll sing about that. in the desert. So, that's America. Okay. Um, he also created some advertising logos for bands like Crosby and Stills and Nash. Now, in the late 70s, Hartman made his first television appearance on the episode of The Dating Game. Oh. And he actually won... But the woman missed the date. Oh, man. Damn. Uh, and in 1975, Hartman, or Phil, whatever you want to call him, okay. he joined the comedy group The Groundlings. which oh, you've heard of them, yes. You might have heard of them. Pretty At the time, it was still kind of like an up-and-coming mm-hmm. improv group. But, like, nowadays, I feel like it's pretty well-known because it's got really famous alums, like... Will Ferrell, John Lovitz, Conan O'Brien, Lisa Kudrow, and the fantastic Jennifer Coolidge. I'm taking that dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So while at the Groundlings, Phil helped Paul Rubens develop his character of Pee Wee Herman. And from this, Phil co-wrote the film Pee Wee's Big Adventure and reoccurred as Captain Carl on the Pee Wee show Pee Wee's Playhouse. Okay. So he's, you know, he's kind of getting some traction. You might know who he is. 
Probably not. Yeah. Kind of like a, I feel like more like a background actor and a bunch of stuff you may have heard of. I was going to say, he's probably, at this time, he's one of those actors that, like, you know the face. Mm-hmm. And he's in a lot of things. But you're like, um, you know, he's that man. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in 1982, Phil marries Lisa Strand uh, in a small backyard wedding ceremony. But, of course, this marriage does not last long. Like Phil's first marriage, things start out great. They're mm-hmm. madly in love. But Phil would soon lose interest, and the two divorced in 1985. Damn. In the documentary, Lisa um, was actually interviewed, and she talks about how it just felt like a fl- like a switch had been flipped. Mm-hmm. Like, pretty much, like, as soon as they got married, it was like, he was uninterested. Damn. And then... Like, she mentions, like, for their first, like, their one-year anniversary, you know, mm-hmm. they, they go out on, like, a little trip, and she'd gotten, like, some lingerie, and, you know, like, oh, she'd yeah. come out of the room, and he just went, must you? Mm-hmm. And so she said that she literally, <laughs> oh, like, God. went back in the bathroom, put on some pajamas, and just read a book. Oh, my God. So, you know, th- he, he, it was just really, like, a f- switch had been flipped. I him. really hope that doesn't happen when me and Brandon get married. <laughs> Surely not. Surely he would have lost interest after six years. One would think. I mean. Because for this, it seems like Phil is meeting these gals and then, like, six months later, like, we must get married. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like they're dating very long. He's doing, like, a, I feel like a lot of people, you know, when you meet somebody, you're like, we have a spark. Mm-hmm. And then the spark is there and then it fizzles. I mean, the spark gonna fizzle. That little, that little pitter-patter, it gonna fizzle. Yeah. It'll just be a slow burn. <laughs> it's kind of like the, he is in the honeymoon phase, like when you first start dating someone, yeah. and you're like, oh my gosh, we're really clicking, we're figuring out who each other are, I love their vibes. And then, like, you figure out who they are, and you're like, I still, like, like you as a person, but, like, uh-huh. maybe... The mysteriousness is gone, and we just don't need to date anymore. Well, I'm going to say that the honeymoon phase is um, overrated because, for me, it did make me lose some weight because I was always nervous, and you always get butterflies, but I also was always nauseous. (laughs) It just makes you feel nauseous, but once you get settled, then you don't have to worry about shitting your pants all the time. (laughs) This is true, unless you have IBS, in which case it's an ongoing battle problem. And I, and I think I might. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a little personal on this podcast. Ooh, sorry. Sorry if that was TMI for some of y'all, but at, mean, this po- at this point you should get over we it. We talk about brutal murder, so if you can't listen to our slight digestive <laughs> issues, I mean, come on. Come on. <laughs> so, in the same year that Phil divorces Lisa, he meets Bren Omdell. Omdahl, I believe is how it's pronounced. And Bryn, she was a small-town gal. She came to Hollywood with the hope of being an actress. She's really pretty. She's tall, blonde hair. You know, she's got some good charisma. Sounds like me. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) what I was going to say. She was a swimsuit model, so. Sounds like me. (laughs) So, while living in Hollywood, Bryn would frequent parties, which, from my understanding, that's just, like, how you kind of, like, get noticed in Hollywood. Is like, you go, you mingle, because, like, it's not really a nine-to-five job trying to be an mm-hmm. actress. So you go and you mingle and they'll be like, oh, I think you'd be great for so-and-so. Let me refer you to my friend who is a casting agent or something, you know. But while at these parties, she would experiment with cocaine because that was something that mm-hmm. was, you know, pretty frequent in the 80s. Um, and unfortunately, this experimentation did lead to her becoming addicted. Mm. And so at the time that her and Phil meet, she had already been struggling, and I believe she had already been to rehab once. So this was already something that she was struggling with um, when they met, and Phil knew that. Um, but they still f- fall madly in love. Okay. Phil thinks she's beautiful, and that, you know, like, he would look... Basically, he really liked that she looked good on his arm. He was a little bit older. Um, he was, I believe, 10 years older than her. He was about... 40 at the time. Okay. So, uh, you know, things were but kind of superficial. Yeah. I don't want to, like, discredit that they did fall in love, but, like, it also seems a little bit superficial. But they, they fall, like, madly in love. And very quickly, they start this pattern of having, like, knockdown, drag-out arguments. Ooh. Like, they would make up, and then they would like have these huge arguments and they make up mm. 
So, but despite this toxic behavior, to the public, Phil and Bryn looked like the ideal Hollywood couple. He was a funny man. She was a beautiful actress. Mm -hmm. So, like, from the outside looking in, it really looked like they had the ideal relationship. Yeah. And in 1986, Phil joined the cast of Saturday Night Live. Live from New York! (laughs) Uh, At this time, SNL was doing terribly. Okay. Um, The season before... Uh, the 1985 season, it had been so bad, it had gotten such terrible reviews that Madonna actually had a skit for the opening season of the 1986 season where she read reviews of oh. how terrible Saturday Night Live was oh, and God. she would, like, apologize. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was almost like Saturday Night Live apologizing to the public for that shitty season. Um, so that's kind of, like, where Saturday Night Live was. And Phil kind of helped to turn things around. Mm. He did fantastic on the show. He was super versatile um, and could perform a very large array of characters. He was really good at impressions and accents. And he was kind of... He wasn't so much a physical actor. Yeah. You know, like some actors, like I would say like Melissa McCarthy is very much a physical actress. Her getting hit by a car and things <laughs> like that, that's how she, um, she's also very funny just like talking, yeah. but like she's a very physical one where mm-hmm. he could just like transform. So during his eight years on the show, Phil won a Primetime Emmy Award in 1989 and established many memorable characters like the caveman lawyer, um, but probably his most famous SNL skit was his impression of Bill Clinton. And his impression of Bill Clinton was so popular that Phil actually was a guest star on Jay Leno's The Tonight Show, but as Bill Clinton. (laughs) So, like, he would sit down on the couch and Jay Leno would, like, interview him, but, like, as Bill Clinton. He would answer questions as if he was Bill Clinton. So, he's really becoming a household name and uh, Saturday Night Live's really turned itself around. And in 1987, Phil and Bryn get married. And after the second season of SNL that Phil was on, uh, Bryn and him, they welcome their first child. And Phil immediately takes to being a father. He loves it. He loves spending time. Um, which is always something interesting. Like, some people will be like, oh, he's a shitty husband. Mm-hmm. He must be a shitty father. But sometimes you can be a shitty husband or a shitty wife and still be a really good parent. Yeah. You know, like, when people get divorced, I feel like, you know, they might not have, fa- they might have fallen out of love, but, like, you still love your child and yeah. you still want the best for them. So, around this time, when they welcomed their first child, Lisa Strand, who was Phil's second wife, okay, so one right before Bren, she writes a letter to the couple, like, congratulating them on the- welcoming their child. So, like, you know, it's a nice little letter, yeah. sends them a gift, which I think, us. You know, you're trying to, like, good make gesture. amends. Yeah. Um, and she, I think she made, in the documentary, she said, like, she made a little bit of a joke. Like, you know, like, you know, if you ever need a babysitter, LOL. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, Bryn did not oh. go for this. Oh, well. She sent a letter back to Lisa basically stating that if she ever came near Phil or the kids or Bryn or even contacted them again, that she would fucking kill her. Oh, boy. So we're already seeing, they already, like, she's already having this toxic relationship with the mm-hmm. arguments with Phil, and then she's also kind of, like, displaying this sort of violent or aggressive behavior. Uh, basically, she is not to be messed with. So Lisa's like, what the fuck? She writes, she, like, calls Phil and was like, what the fuck? This is what your wife sent me. And Phil basically said, well, you should have seen the letter that she wanted to send. It was way worse. Ooh. So basically, even though she said she wanted to fucking kill you. Yeah, what could be worse? <laughs> um... The first letter, the first draft was a little bit worse, I guess. So, the following years, Phil and Bryn are living on different coasts. Bryn's living in California with the kids, and Phil is living in New York doing Saturday Night Live. Mm. Um, And I I think he's flying, they're flying back and forth, you know, just so they can see the kids. But, like, for the most part, their marriage is fairly strained. Which, to me, I don't quite, I mean, I guess, like, if she wanted to live in California, but to me, I'm also, like, why not just live in New York? Unless maybe he, she just thought that was the better place to raise the kids. But to me, I mean, I, to me, I don't want to discredit her, but she really didn't have much of a career at that point. So I don't know yeah, why don't, she wanted to stay in California unless she was still holding on to that idea. Yeah. That, also, like, maybe you don't want to live exactly in New York, but living, like, completely on opposite sides of the country, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. So, and at this point... You know, Phil's career, it's taken off. But Bryn's is pretty much non-existent at, the po- at this mm. point. Um, she's just living with the kids, taking care of them, 
and Phil's just, he's basically the money. Uh, around this time, Phil and Bren's relationship was getting even more toxic. God. According to a friend, Phil would pretend to be asleep at night to avoid fighting with Bren all Ooh. night. Basically, he, they would get in an argument and then he would, like, just pretend to be asleep. <laughs> because if he said if not, they would argue the entire night. Oh my god. Um, some friends reported that Bren resented Phil for working and being the breadwinner while Bren was just sitting at home not having a career. Especially since she wanted yeah. to be an actress. Um, and Phil, pretty much from the second that they got, like, together, was like, stick with me, kid. I'll make sure you, you become a big star. Which, he's becoming a big star, but she's not getting any roles. She's not getting any supporting roles with his films. Mm. You know, so there's even more resentment. She wanted her own career, but she was just sort of being left in Phil's shadow. So, this, along with several other issues in their marriage, was taking a toll. But outside of his personal life, Phil was continuing to find success. He began working on The Simpsons, where he was featured on 52 episodes and voiced various characters, including Lionel Hutz, the sleazy lawyer in town. Oh, yeah. And Troy McClure, who was, like, the the actor. And, like, he came, Uh, he coined, like, the famous, like, line, like, you may know me from such films as blah, 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 blah. uh, (laughs) Um, As well as several one-time... Or background characters. So, like, you know, he might just, like, voice random characters yeah. that are in the background. Um, continuing throughout the 90s, Phil's career just continued to progress. He gets brand deals from Cheetos, McDonald's, <laughs> Foot Locker. Uh, kind of, it reminds me a little bit of, like, when Modern Family became popular. And, like, yeah. Sofia Vergara was everywhere. You know, she's yes. on the Pepsi commercials. Uh, it's, like, very similar to she's that. She's on Head and Shoulders commercials, too. She's also on <laughs> Head and Shoulders commercials. You're not, you're not wrong on that uh, one. Her and her son. Yeah. Um, so this means he's finally making some big bucks. Like, I yeah. feel like he obviously was probably making good money from Saturday Night Live. But, like, mm-hmm. now he's making some real money. He's getting that McDonald's money. Damn. Um, and so this means he starts treating himself. He buys several boats. He buys a plane. And he's never home. Because he's, mm. in the documentary, I don't like using this term, but I feel like it's appropriate. He was just out playing with his toys. You know uh, what I mean? Like, yeah. he's on the boat. He's f- flying. I think it's so funny when people get rich and they start flying. Like, who, who what? Like, they fly their own planes? Yeah, like Harrison, Ooh, no. like Harrison Ford has a plane and he flies it all the time. Yeah, fuck no. Fuck that. <laughs> I don't even want to step foot into a plane. I could never trust myself to fly it. Also, I've said it before. Even if I am, like, incredibly rich one day, like, I'm talking... Rich enough to buy a plane, uh-huh. I still think I would want to fly a commercial. Oh, 100%. Because I feel like those little planes I don't trust always them. go down. Oh, my God. Absolutely not. I don't care if I am the president of the United States. I refuse to get on a, on a personal plane. Uh, I will be uh, yeah. flying Southwest. I know. I or, rent out that whole bitch if we have to, but that's what we well, take it. Well, you can't rent that. You, if you rent out a big commercial one, you still have to put bitches on it because if it's too light, I think that bitch will fly, fall out the sky or something. Oh, God. I don't know how physics works, but I think that's essentially what happens. Well, but yes, I, I will be, you we'll know. fill it with my cabinet. <laughs> yes, but if I am rich, I refuse to do like helicopters, no. small personal planes. We have seen that time and time again. You know, we got Harrison Ford. He, he, I think, I don't know if his plane crashed, but it got damn near close to crashing. Yeah. Luckily, you well, know, he is all right, probably just he, shaken. He might should get somebody else to fly it. Um, this is true. Um, I think it was like a storm situation. Uh, you know, that's always what it, uh, yeah. that's always what it is. Yeah. Or mechanical issues. And then, of course, Leonard Skinner. Oh, yes, yes. So, you know, I, I'll be flying commercial. Thank you. Me too. Um, we're, not that we're rich or going to be rich. No, I don't think I'm ever going <laughs> to be gotta rich. Make, you got to make these plans. Look, just in case, you got to you gotta let the people know. <laughs> um, so, this, with him, Phil not being home, this continues. This resentment yeah. and this strain on their marriage. Bren felt that Phil wasn't home enough. He wasn't spending enough time with the kids, which I get it. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to fault her for that. No, I'll be pissed. I'll be pissed. You're already not home because you're living in New York and we're living in California. So you're already gone, mm-hmm. you know, what, probably like six months out of the year. I probably would have already left him by this point. Yes. Um, and then when you are home, you just out with the boat. Fucking take the kids on the boat, bitch. Which at the same time. I did say I would leave him, but if she is not able to get, you know, 
to work and she still has to watch these kids mm-hmm. then i do understand that she may you know still need to be with him just for like practical purposes mm-hmm. and i feel like at some point you know it's one of those things like she might have still loved him that's true you know that's true to some extent they probably still felt some love especially with them having children together yeah because you know you're you're like oh that's that's my children's father i, I want to stay with him for the kids so, in 1994, Phil departs from Saturday Night Live. And in 1995, he began starring as Bill McNeil in the NBC sitcom News Radio, a role that would earn him an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. Now, if you're still listening to this and you're like, I still don't quite know who Phil Hartman is. Uh-huh. Let me just give you a few uh, other things that he was in that might might spark a memory. Okay. So in 1989, he was in Kiki's Delivery Service. Did you ever watch that as a kid? Uh, I don't think so, no. Oh my god, it's so good. I remember <laughs> when I was little, I used to go to Blockbuster Video. Uh-huh. And I, that was one of those films that I would watch over and over again. So basically, it's this girl, and she... I can't remember the full extent of it. It was a little cartoon. She... It's like delivering bread and like different baked <laughs> goods. You know, it's a delivery service. Yeah. But she's like flying. Like she like flies on a broom. It's really cute. She has like a cat. It's awesome. I don't think I watched um, so he voiced some characters in that. And then in 1996, he made, to me, probably the most significant appearance. Did you ever watch Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger? No. Oh. You, you know I'm not a, you know I'm not a, a video, a movie gal. Oh, I, so again... This is, like, totally 90s babies things. Yeah. But we have... I think I still have the VHS of that movie. So, basically, the premise of Jingle All the Way, I'd highly recommend you watch it during the Christmas season. I think I've definitely season. heard of it. Uh, so, Arnold Schwarzenegger and his wife, they are, you know, they're strained. Mm-hmm. You know, things aren't going well. And he's working all the time. And he needs to prove that he's a good father. And his son wants a Turbo Man action figure so it it is making fun of like how commercialized christmas is Mm -hmm. but basically the whole movie is arnold schwarzenegger's character trying to get this turbo man doll and he's like getting beat up by housewives at target (laughs) and like he's battling with this mailman who's another father that's trying to get this toy but because his marriage is strained, Phil Hartman plays a character who's like the neighbor, who's like um, who's like trying to make moves oh. on the wife. Um, it's really good. It's pretty fun. I should watch it. Um, he was also in Small Sh- Soldiers. You ever watched that? No. Small... You probably. I'm probably gonna have to say no to almost all of this. <laughs> so Small Soldiers is the movie that will terrify the shit out of your child. Okay. It terrified the shit out of me. Basically, the premise is there's these. Again, action figure dolls, but they're like kind of like G.I. Joe dolls. Mm. And so something about, I want to say it's like somehow like this government ships like get implanted into these action figures. <laughs> and so the G.I. Joe dolls are trying to kill these kids. Oh, God. Yeah, it'll get you. I'm going to show mm. it to my kids. Yeah, you should watch it. It'll scare you. There's this part where like the one guy has like a, like the action figure doll has like. I don't know, like a chainsaw for a hand. He's trying yeah. to cut, no. like kill this kid. God. Yeah. I think, and it's rated like PG. <laughs> so yeah, watch that. But he's in that. So, moving on. Mm-hmm. If you don't know who he is, I can't help you at this point. I'm sure if I see a picture, you know, I'll look him up while you're talking, and we'll, yeah. we'll see if I recognize. All right. So, on May. Uh, 27th, 1998, Bryn had dinner with producer and writer Kristen Zander, who would later go on record as saying Bryn was in a good state, uh, sorry, a good frame of mind. Once arriving home, Bryn and Phil got in a heated argument, like they often did, mm-hmm. and Phil went to bed, which we already know, you know, Phil would typically go to bed just to avoid these arguments. Yes. You know, so they probably got, he probably was like, I want to do this, you know what I mean, want to go to bed. So... Bryn later enters the bedroom and fatally shoots yeah. Phil once between the eyes, once in the throat, mm. and once in the upper chest with a Charter Arms 38 caliber handgun as he slept. No. She was taking Zoloff at the time to treat her depression mm. um, and had been drinking alcohol and had also recently used cocaine. Oh. So, you mean... She- was not in her right mind. No. Um, Bryn then, I think she was in shock. So she drove to their fr- their mutual friend, 
Ron Douglas's home and told him what happened. And initially, Ron was like, you're lying. Yeah. You didn't do that. You didn't believe her. So they drove back to the house. There, they find Phil's body, and Ron calls 911. Police arrive and escort Ron, as well as Phil and Bren's two children who were still in the house, mm-hmm. uh, off the property. She, she left the children in the house? Yes. Oh, God. So Phil had been at home with the kids. Everyone was asleep. Then she came in and shot him. And then she was like, I think, because, again, she's like, high. She's not, yeah, she's, true. She's not in, her, in her right mind. So she leaves, you oh, know? Oh, God. Um, and so then the police escort them off the property. However, by this time, Bryn had locked herself in the bedroom where she took her own life by shooting herself. Oh, God. After this, a wrongful death lawsuit was filed in 1999 by Bryn's brother, Gregory, um, against Pfizer, who was the drug manufacturer of Zoloft, mm-hmm. again, and against the child's uh, pediatrics, uh, who they had both given her, like, samples of Zoloft. Okay. Which, if you're kind of, like, trying to wrap your brain around this, so, I'm not going to get too much into this, but, like, we've had experiences in my family, like, my extended family with something like this. So, like, there's... Whenever you know someone has battled with some sort of addiction, mm-hmm. you have to be very careful about prescribing them yeah. things. So this was a big issue for Zoloft, oh. that they would pr- prescribe this to people, a lot of depressed housewives or anyone yeah. battling with depression, and they would they would already have like this drug addiction or maybe they were having issues with alcoholism. But like when you mix those two together, you know, like okay, you're on Zoloft, and then maybe you relapse. It can really mess with your mental state. Um, And so they actually had a lot of people commit suicide over this. So the fact that she was on Zoloft because she was already depressed, Mm -hmm. and then she was already battling with addiction, and maybe she had some drinks at dinner, and then, you know, maybe she was stressed, so she maybe did a little bit of cocaine, and then that just all culminated and then she just God. she just wasn't in her right mind well i me and brandon have been watching a lot of intervention lately mm-hmm. and one episode the girl was like addicted to prescri- prescription like drugs mm-hmm. and i guess i'm dumb well i'm not dumb like i seen that she was maybe getting them from like other people like people mm-hmm. were maybe manufacturing something that was similar mm-hmm. but she's literally going to the doctor's office to get them because mm-hmm. she had a boyfriend who's like mooching off of her mm-hmm. and she was like i'm the one that goes to all the doctor's appointments and i looked at brandon and i said they literally go to the doctor and get this and mm-hmm. he was like yeah and i was like yes. i don't even know how to fathom so when that people, uh, i always find it interesting when people are talking about like the like the drug crisis Mm -hmm. in america i think a lot of people are quick to point to like other countries you know like oh they're they're bringing in the drugs but really i think the yeah a huge issue in the united states is just people getting prescribed things they don't need to be given prescriptions for so like okay you break your arm it's gonna hurt but like you don't need to get like oxycontin yeah they also give you like way too many like when i got my wisdom teeth taken out Mm -hmm. i took the prescription that they gave me for like maybe three days and i had like 30 of them mm-hmm. and i'm like we got rid of them but i'm like i can see why which i didn't like them i took it and it immediately made me calm the fuck out so mm-hmm. but i was like yeah why would i need 30 percocets yeah you don't you just no, don't I and do so not. people get over prescribed and then they get they they end up kind of liking it and they uh-huh. end up getting addicted and for this scenario like she was she wasn't even per, necessarily prescribed it. She was given samples of it, and I just don't think that Zoloft. A sample. Is, I don't think you need to get as like a sample of Zoloft. No. That just doesn't. It's not a mean, fucking Costco. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, this isn't a Tostino pizza roll no. at the damn Costco. It's a fucking Zoloft. Yeah. Um. So I do think that there was a bit of wrongdoing. Yes. On it. Um. Which is very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bryn's sister Catherine and her husband ended up raising Bryn and Phil's children. Mm. And from the documentary and from hearing what family friends have to say, the kids did end up living a semi-normal life, you okay. know. Like That's they good. ended up going to college, you know, getting mm-hmm. married, you know. So I, I hope that they are living a good life because they really had a traumatic experience yeah. at such a young age. Um, and as were Phil's wishes... His body was cremated by Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Mortuary and Glendale, California, and his ashes were scattered at 
over Santa Catalina Island in the Emerald Bay. Um, which I'm assuming is that related to the Catalina wine mixer? <laughs> the fucking Catalina wine mixer. Oh no, I guess. Um, but that that's where he spent a lot of his time because you yeah. know he was really into boats, mm-hmm. so he would spend a lot of time on the boat uh, in the Catalina Island. Sounds nice. Sounds like a good place to rest in peace. Mm-hmm. But that is the uh, the tragic story of Phil Hartman and Bryn Hartman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mom has, like, because I grew up watching Jingle All the Way, so my mom yeah. has always told me about this. But, like, I did so I just, all I knew was that he was shot by his wife. Oh. Um, but I didn't know anything else about it. And yeah. I knew that they had gotten in an argument. But I was under the impression that maybe, like, he was trying to, like, you know, grab the gun or something. He yeah. I didn't think it was actually. But I don't think that she was, I don't think this was premeditated. I think this was very much. She probably just, like, snapped. Yes, I think that the, maybe maybe they should have just gotten divorced a long time ago. She wasn't in the right mental state and then, you know, was prescribed some things. But it's very sad. That is sad. Wow. Thanks for that terribly sad story. So sorry. Um, but, you know, when is murder going to be happy? Mm, usually almost never. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there. But oh, that's my story. Thank and I'm you. sticking to it. Thank you for that story. I really appreciated it. Now it's going to really really make me think about the opioid crisis in America. Just uh, maybe maybe I um, will just Maybe do... this will make y'all think. Make you think, God. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amber. And we're, and we're the hosts of True Crime Buzz. Buzz. We believe there's nothing better than a good glass of wine. Or whiskey. And true crime. So buckle up and get ready, y'all, because each week we like to pour a glass and discuss true stories of crimes committed by people who probably should have been swallowed, let's be honest. That's right. Murders, missing persons, cults, we cover it all. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify with new episodes every Tuesday. So grab a drink and join us. Cheers! Are you ready for my story? No. Well, too bad. I'm going to read it anyways. God. You can walk away. Sit here and take it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, my sources right off the bat (laughs) popsugar.com, goodhousekeeping.com. That's really good. Yeah. Goodhousekeeping.com, which I found interesting that I found the majority of my information on that website. Mm -hmm. Very odd. And wikipedia.com. Never heard of it. So I'm doing my story on Rebecca Schaefer. Okay. I already knew this. How did you know this? Because you told... So, spoiler alert. Because me and Taylor have such high anxiety that we're going to do the same story each week. Yeah. We always give each other a hint. And so when you told me that it happened in, like, the end of the 1980s, I knew exactly who you were doing it on. Because I thought about doing that because I find her story kind of tragic. Yeah. Uh, So... We'll see. I already knew. I already knew. When I, well, when I started researching it at first, I didn't know if, I was like, I don't think I know this one. But then when I kind of got through it, I was like, I think I actually have heard this before. Mm-hmm. But I feel like hers is similar to other, like, stories. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you know what? Let's not beat around the bush. Let's just fucking talk about it. Fuck. So, okay. So, Rebecca Schaefer was born on November 6, 1967 in Oregon. And she was an only child. To her parents, who were Benson and Dana Schaefer. At a young age, she began to have a passion for drama and acting. And later on in her teenage years, she was actually approached to try modeling. Because she's very beautiful. You know, your typical, like, gal next door. just like me. Yeah? Were you approached to be a model? Yeah, the (laughs) JCPenney's. God. Which I'm like, could you imagine being just so beautiful as a teenager that you could be a model? Like, no, my acne would have never allowed it. My, uh, you know, overweightness would have never <laughs> allowed it. The chicken nuggets that I ate would never, would never have allowed that to happen. <laughs> um, and so only a few years into her modeling career, she moved to New York to pursue, like, full-on entertainment career. I think she, like, went to school there for, like, inter- you know entertainment stuff and initially she got a small role on the soap opera guiding light and then she got a role on another soap opera called one life to live i've heard of guiding light i don't think i've heard of one life to live um i'm not a soap opera gal 
No. Unless you consider Downton Abbey a soap opera. No, I consider, like, soap operas definitely the ones that come on every single day during yeah. the day. Like, if you're not watching, uh, like, a soap opera, you're watching Dr. Phil. Like, along yeah. those lines. Which I think Downton Abbey is soap opera-esque, but it's, like, quality. It's a good British soap. soap and soap it's got better editing. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like with uh, soap operas, because they're filming one every single day, they're like, <laughs> one take! God. Let's do it. I hate soap operas. When it was that time of the day when I'm at my grandma's house, just, I can't listen to it. They're terrible. So terrible. But Young and the Restless, don't want to hear about it. Victor Newman, fuck it. <laughs> um, and so at this time, she, you know, she was acting now, but she was still trying to be a model, but she was only five foot seven. God. So she was considered too short to what be a high fashion. Can't relate with my five foot one self. Well, you know, when you watch like America's Next Top Model, like if they're, un- I think it's the cutoff is like five, eight is like the shortest they want you to be for high fashion. Mm-hmm. Cause like one year they literally did like a season with just like short girls. It was like, they were, I guess they were like five one to five, seven. And it was like a God. short girl season. Can't get anything from the top shelf on that season. Look, don't you love how they would always have like one plus size model? And she though, would be like, like normal. But yeah, and they may she may wear I don't know a size fourteen, but she got curves in the right places. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's also one of those things uh, because from what my understanding of just like models in general is, you either have to be very very skinny to be a regular model, yeah, or you have to be fairly large to be a plus size model. You cannot be in between. So like a size eight, that doesn't fly. Yeah, like us, we would have to pick one way or the other. Like they would have to be like, okay, you're gonna have to lose weight and go down, mm-hmm. or you're gonna have to gain weight. But I mean, if I gain weight, I'm just gonna gain it in my belly. It ain't going to the hips you where they want it. Eternity model hey that's a good idea that's a good idea <laughs> this podcast doesn't what? work out in law school doesn't it that's a maternity model <laughs> that's a money-making idea God. for you and so she decided to put her modeling career you know on hold and focus more on her acting since she was so incredibly short but she's taller than both of us so true. <laughs> we have no hope um, and so her true break came when she landed the role of Patty in the 1980s sitcom My Sister Sam. Now, I don't think I've ever heard of this show, but as you know, I am not a pop culture gal, so. This is true. If you need any pop culture references, do not come to Taylor. Come to me. And I don't know why, I just don't know why I'm not. Maybe it's because I lived out in the boonies and we just played out in the crick all the time. I really don't know. I don't know. I just feel like in general, it's just your raisin. Um, because my, I had an older sister, so I know a lot about, like, maybe pop culture that, like, I necessarily wasn't old enough to know, but because yeah. she knew, I did. Uh, and then I just feel like, you know. My, like you're interested in it, though. I'm also interested in it, and my mom, I feel like, especially with, like, music, really was like, like, my mom quizzes me. You know, you're on the radio. Who is this? Oh, yeah, no. You gots to. You got to know. You can't be shamed on a road trip. The only radio... Okay. Well, to be fair, the only radio station that my family played when I was young was, I'm talking, like, old-ass country. Like, ask, ask me some stuff about, like, Waylon Jennings and uh, Johnny Cash. Loretta Lynn. That's about it. Look, when I'm telling y'all I came from the backwoods of nowhere, I'm serious. I really did. Okay. I just want to go off on record and say I have been to Taylor's hometown <laughs> And it's not as backwoods as she is saying it is. <laughs> it feels like They it. have running water. She doesn't no, have don't. to shit in an outhouse. You know, like. I did that. <laughs> hey, the water would turn brown when it rained. That's because you had well water. But That's true. It tastes good. Though. Listen, she she's definitely more backwoods than I did growing up at the beach. But. She also is not deliverance no. backwards. I think it was also just that my family, that was just not something that we were into. We were really into country music and uh, Christian contemporary music. That was. Yeah. That was, the, that was my peak of, of uh, I culture. I only imagine. God, yes. <laughs> like that stuff. Yes, that shit. Okay, it was either country or that shit. So that's, that's where I'm coming from, people. Okay, God. Get on her level. <laughs> Get on my level. Okay, and so she got the role in My Sister Sam. That's where we were at. So at this point, she moved back to the West Coast, uh, to California in 1986. So My Sister Sam, if you don't know, because I didn't know, 
uh, was a sitcom that follows the lives of Sam, a 29-year-old freelance photographer in San Francisco, and her 16-year-old sister, Patty, played by Rebecca. Uh, Sam's life basically gets turned upside down when her sister, Patty, comes to live with her um, after having lived with an aunt and uncle in rural Oregon for a while after the death of their the girl's parents. Like, I guess that's, like, the backstory, kind of, of how it, it all lays out. It reminds me of, did you ever watch What I Like About You with Amanda Bynes? Yeah. That's kind of like that. See, I did watch that, so. Um, she's seen a TV <laughs> show, ladies and gentlemen. And so, you know... Patty one day randomly shows up on Sam's front porch and was like, hey, I'm living with you now. And, you know, it's a sitcom, so shenanigans ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the show aired 44 episodes between 1986 and 1988. And during that time, Rebecca's fan base grew exponentially. Like, people were recognizing her. They knew her. They liked her role. Listen, much like this podcast, you I, know, know. I just have, like... Can I even go out in public? I can't. I have to wear a mask. Me too. <laughs> and I, I put some sunglasses on and a little mustache on. <laughs> um, and just during, trying to keep a normal life. Look, can't can't let the fans get I'm just to a, me. I'm just an ordinary girl. God, please quit. Please quit flocking us in the street. <laughs> um, but during this time, she was the cover girl for Seventeen magazine's March 1987 edition, and she even starred in several different movies. So Rebecca's life was going well. She was successful, young, very young and successful. You know, she was living that dream life in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. She maybe didn't make it as a model, but acting, honestly, I feel like I would like being an actress better anyways. Even though I'm terrible at acting. I have only auditioned for one role in a church play back in fifth grade. They only had one line, and I didn't get it. Damn it. <laughs> and it was a church. They would give me solos, though. They thought I was a good little singer. Little singer. Uh-huh. Um, listen, I really brought the house down with my role as silly girl number three <laughs> in the Beauty and the Beast Junior performance uh, at my middle school. So, well, there's I a DVD of that oh, somewhere. Yeah? I never acted. I was in drama in, um, you know, high school and middle school. But I didn't act me since I was a dancer. I don't know if y'all know this about me. I was a dancer. So we would choreograph for the plays, but we wouldn't be in it because... We, first of all, we didn't have time because we were always dancing because, you know, it was competitive. And so, also, all of us, terrible actors. It was like, if you dance, just don't open your mouth. Just be quiet on stage. <laughs> um, and so, on July 18th, 1989, when Rebecca was 21, she was at her home in West Hollywood and somebody knocked on her door. And so, she opened the door and the person at the door was 19-year-old Robert John Bardo, who was a really big fan of hers. Um, He had traveled from Tucson, Arizona to meet Rebecca. And like I said, he was a huge fan and he had hired a private investigator to locate her home so he could go see her. He paid an agency, I think about $250, and they got her address from the California DMV. Like, they just gave it to him. Listen, I'm here to say... People are always like, I don't want people to have my information, but I'm here to tell you, if you exist, your information is so easy to get. Oh, yeah. Like, even if, like, people who are like, I don't want TikTok because I want the government having my information. I'm like, if you go to the grocery store, they have your information. I mean. There's cameras everywhere. Yes. Your credit card. If you own a credit card, you bought a house. You you probably have a chip in your brain. This is true. (laughs) If you've you've gotten tested for coronavirus, they've most certainly... (laughs) Put a chip in your brain. That is the most insane conspiracy (laughs) theory. Because I'm like, at that point, people who've gotten tested multiple times, are they just implanting multiple chips? Like, are they really wanting, like, the specific housewife in the middle of nowhere? This is true. No one cares about me. I know. I'm like, if I get tested, I don't think they, like, if they put a chip in me, they're going to be very disappointed at my activities. Yes, they are. And so when, okay, when Bardo was at uh, Rebecca's door, he had a card with him that she had sent to him, like, you know, thanks for being a fan or whatever. Like maybe he had written a letter to her and and she had written it back. Yeah. And so, and he had a photo of her and a copy of Catcher in the Rye. Oh no. Which, you know, you know, you know where this is probably going to lead. So Rebecca spoke with Bardo and she was kind to him and she basically just kind of smiled and was like, please take care. Like a nice way of saying, please go away, get off my porch. (laughs) And so after this, he left 
Rebecca's house and went to a nearby diner and ate some breakfast. But about an hour later, he returned to Rebecca's house, went to the door again, and knocked on it. And this time, Rebecca opened the door and Bardo pulled out a 357 Magnum pistol and pointed it at her chest and shot her directly in the heart. And he says that she was screaming and saying, why, why? And he said he was thinking about shooting himself and falling on top of her like, you know, a murder-suicide. But he didn't. Okay. He said that probably as a, I thought about, you know. He's trying to be dramatic. Yeah. So instead, he fled the scene. And a neighbor, like, had heard what happened and called the police. And 30 minutes after being rushed to the hospital, Rebecca was pronounced dead. And so the next day, Robert was found running down a freeway in Tucson, Arizona, literally yelling, I killed Rebecca Schaefer. And people had, like, seen him running through traffic, and they, like, you know, called the police. They were like, you've got to come get this person. And so he was arrested and immediately confessed to the murder. And I put, I mean, he kind of already did that. He was yelling it up and down the street. And so you may be wondering, what the fuck just happened? Some, like, child showed up at her door, shot her for seemingly no reason. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently Robert had began stalking Rebecca about three years earlier and tried to gain access to the set of My Sister Sam a few times. So the first time, he was turned away, and then he returned to the set a month later, this time carrying a knife, and the security turned him away. Good job. Yeah, obviously. I'm like, okay, you didn't you didn't get in the first time with no knife. What makes you think the second time, knife in hand, is going to get you in? <laughs> Does this change it for you? <laughs> Does this uh, giant knife change anything? Can I get in now? No. The answer was no. And he also would write numerous letters to her, and one of which she answered, which was the one he had with him at the door. Mm-hmm. But I think they said, you know, she didn't actually answer it. It was probably her staff. Yes, just in general with celebrities, I mean, I had a friend who wrote, like, you know, did you ever write, like, The President before? No, I wrote the, um, you ever watch that show Zoom? It came on, like, PBS. Oh, yes, And it was, I like, do. a bunch of kids. kids like, and they would do, like, crafts and uh, shit. Yeah, me and my cousin, Bree, haha, another shout out. We would write to the Zoom bitches, like, all the time. Yeah, I remember when... When I was little, we did Flat Stanley in, like, first grade, oh, yeah. and you would send a Flat Stanley to, like, different towns and shit, uh-huh. and so someone would always write one to, like, the president, and then they would send you, like, a generic letter. Yeah. Um, I think it's similar to that. Like, somebody in... That's someone's specific job, just yeah. to write back. Yeah. And so, but other than that, I mean, there was no contact between them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no relationship between the two. He was just a fan and but he was known to have unhealthy infatuations with like pop singers and famous people but most of his focus was put onto Rebecca mm. and so he went to her house that day with the purpose of killing her it wasn't like he went and then when he got turned away he got mad mm-hmm. and then he wanted to kill her he had decided to murder her earlier Because he saw her in a love scene in the movie, like a movie she was in called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. And in that movie, she was in bed with a man. God forbid. Yeah. And he said that he wanted to kill her after seeing this because he was enraged with her being in the bed with a man. And when he was speaking to a clinical police and forensic psychologist, I assume during his confession, he was like quoted to have said, how dare she? She's mine. She's supposed to say innocent for me. And then he said he was, um, she was going to pay for becoming another, quote, Hollywood whore. And then saying, quote, I'm going to punish you permanently. No, I'm going to punish you and permanently possess you by taking your life. What? So, like, he had, like, when he saw this, he was like, she's mine. Lost her innocence, quote, unquote, Mm -hmm. innocence. And so he was like, I'm going to kill her. Like, just just craziness. And he admits that he was inspired to kill her from an article he saw in the 1982 People magazine in which a man named Arthur Jackson had went to actress Teresa Saldana's house and killed her in a similar manner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the rage and that, he was like, "Mm, I'm going to do it. And during his trial, his law, you... His lawyer argued that he was suffering from a mental condition. 
And his brother and sister both testified that he did drop out of high school to undergo mental health treatment. Um, And at that point, it was revealed that he did have mental health issues because he wasn't even able to purchase the gun that he used to murder her. His brother actually purchased it for him, which... Which, that reminds me of, um, like, in the Columbine shooting. Yeah. Those boys were not able to get guns, but they got someone to buy them for him. Yeah. And so he did have mental health issues, but... You know, it still doesn't... It doesn't mean that you get to shoot Murder people. And so, the deputy district attorney in this case prosecuting him was Marsha Clark. Damn, (laughs) she gets around. Yeah, as we all know from the OJ trial. And she argued that the reason that he shot and killed Rebecca was not because he was mentally ill. Like, maybe he was mentally ill, but it was just because he was simply obsessed with her. Yes. And just a bad dude. Yes. And in 1991, he was found guilty of first-degree murder, okay, and mm-hmm. sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. And in 2007, this is just a little tidbit, he was stabbed by a fellow inmate 11 times at Mule Creek State Prison, but survived. What? And is currently serving his sentence in a venal state prison in Central California. Did it say why the inmate shot him? Stabbed him. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Damn, you've got a gun in prison. Ooh, Ooh boy. boy. No, say- I mean, you know, it was probably it was probably a, a kerfuffle. Maybe, maybe he's trying to say, you know, Rebecca Shaver still got shooters out here. <laughs> I know, but if you look up this guy Bardo, he looks insane, scary. Yeah, it reminds me. This case reminds me a little bit of like the John Lennon case. Yes. In it- the- that's what it mentioned in the article. It was like he was carrying Catcher in the Rye like John Lennon's murder yes. was. Yes. Um, which, you know, I feel like in general, like people are always like, oh my gosh, I love so and so, like the actor or the uh-huh. celebrity. And then, like, maybe celebrities, they, they get irritated with celebrities because they're like, I came up and asked for a picture and they said no, you know, they just want to fuck oh, off yeah. or something. But, like, Yes, that can they could probably say it a little bit more tastefully, but you also have to put it in their shoes that like they don't know if you're not gonna kill them or not. I know. Like, you know, she opened the door, she was perfectly nice, and then he killed her. Yeah. John Lennon turned around thinking he was gonna, you know, take a picture with a fan or sign mm-hmm. an autograph, got shot. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, just in general, I think you got to give celebrities a little bit of leeway just because, you know, there are people out there that are willing to hurt them. She was also a very young girl, Mm -hmm. like, living. It sounded like she lived alone. Yeah. And I'm like... She probably lived... It was probably the first time she ever lived alone. I'm surprised she even opened the door. Because I... Somebody... I think I've probably said this before. Somebody knocks on my door. I think we said it last week. Even if it's an old lady, I ain't opening it. I'm not opening it. Now, but I would also say, you know, she probably lived in a pretty good area. That's true. She probably lived in a nice apartment complex. It's also in, like, the 80s. Yeah, she probably felt safe because she was like, oh, I live in a nice area. Mm -hmm. Bad shit can still happen. Yes. And so, you know, this, like, murder is incredibly sad, tragic, so young. Um, But some good things came out of it like not necessarily good but you know there's a little bit of light there's a a little bit of a silver lining yeah it's very it's very tiny but um and so in 1990 which was a year after her death california passed the first ever anti-stalking law in the united states states which sounds crazy that um 1990 was the first time that they were like Mm -hmm. hey stalking that's a thing that's bad I mean, I get that because I feel like a like all in that little time span, you had Rebecca Schaefer, you had John Lennon, and then when was Versace? Was mm-hmm. the was that later? I can't remember, and I think also maybe do you remember the Selena? Oh my goodness! Which I don't know if that was necessarily a stalker, but I mean, I kind of I feel like it's a similar. She had been told she that, that woman had been fired, and yeah, like, because she they she already was a stalker. Yeah, but they they had trusted her. That's such a sad story. I know it is. And so this law made it a felony to cause um, another or their family to be in reasonable fear for their safety, mm-hmm. and it carries a state prison sentence. And as of 2019, this law is recognized in all 50 states. Which still, I'm like. That was very recent. Yes. Uh, which, I feel like stalking is one of those things where, like, I feel like it happens a lot to, like, women and people won't listen to you if you have, like, a stalker. Yes, and it's, like, also one of those like, things where, okay, like, okay, okay, I'm a woman and I don't feel comfortable 
uh, I might not speak up. Yeah. Because I'm afraid that people are going to be like, Sydney, you're just blowing this out of proportion. Yeah. Or you're- like, you should you should feel complimented that he's so into you. Yes. But no. No. Ladies, if you don't feel comfortable, it's okay to say, fuck all that. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't feel comfortable. Or I don't, you know what? If you don't like somebody no more, it's okay to say, fuck them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Say, I don't like you. you Please know? leave Please my leave. presence. You know? It's one thing to be like, oh, we were cool at one point. The second you ain't cool, fuck it. But you know, I was thinking this the other day. If I wasn't, like, socialized to just be a nice, quiet, young gal, I would be a force to be reckoned with. This is true. But unfortunately, I still have that, like, deep down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to inconvenience anybody ever. Mm-hmm. And so, but one day, when we can break free from that, Oh my god, this world ain't ready. <laughs> it's one of those things also I feel like growing up in the South, you're, yeah. you're raised a little bit differently. Which is why I think like maybe like people up in the like who are raised in the north, they're they're taught to you know, they're like yeah. fuck all that noise essentially. Yes. And so, you know, sometimes they come off a little bit abrasive, but they're also like it's also like fuck it. If you don't want to talk to somebody, you gotta fucking talk to them. I know. And I like I like that attitude and I feel like since I came to college, I've definitely been able to break out a little bit we got we got a, we got we got time yeah we're, just, we're still working on ourselves we're still wor- working on ourselves 2020 hell yeah even though it has really fucked us up <laughs> yes, yes this is true um and so also this terrible tragedy prompted the changing of the federal law regarding the release of personal information Good. through the dmv Good. um it was the driver's privacy act it was enacted in 1994 which prevents the dmv from releasing private addresses shocker good idea and her death also influenced Brad Silberling, which was her boyfriend at the time of her murder, to create the film Moonlight Mile, which is about a man who is grieving after his fiance is murdered. Aww. And after her death, her co-stars from uh, the show, My Sister Sam, filmed a public service announcement for the center to prevent handgun violence in her honor. So, not good, but at least something came out of this to help, you know, people in her situation. Yes, it's always one of those things where I'm like, it's so sad that she had to die. Yeah. But hopefully, like, some good came out of this. Hopefully, lives were saved because Mm -hmm. of these changes that were made. Yes. And so, that was the story of Rebecca Schaefer. At first, I was like, I feel like it was kind of short, but I was like, I don't want to just add stuff just for the purpose of adding random shit. Yeah. So, I kept it to the point mm-hmm. because I felt like that was the best way to get Listen, it across. we already get off topic. This is true. You don't need to add anything just because <laughs> you think it's going to make us go a little bit longer. That's true. Trust me. We will talk the episode will be long enough. Ain't nobody worried about this being a long-ass episode. <laughs> That's the that least of their worries. Yeah, we're, we're pretty much at the timestamp we usually are, so <laughs> we've, we've done it once again. Listen, we did it. We did it once Yay! again. We did what was expected of us. Give us a gold star. Yes, yes. Give us five gold stars. Give us five gold stars on Apple Podcasts. Please rate, review, subscribe. Yes, please do. They say, I mean, I don't understand the algorithm, but they say if, you, if we get more ratings, then we're more likely to, I don't know, pop off and be famous (laughs) so yeah please do that that'll be great like if you're listening i know we have a decent number of listeners because on anchor it's telling me and um we don't have that many reviews yet (laughs) so if you listen to this and you you listen to this and you didn't violently throw up from it (laughs) if you weren't immediately repulsed yeah please give us a review um we greatly appreciate it. it does help us out we don't we don't understand how computers work, so we're we don't know how it helps yeah. us out. But we've been told it does. And listen, if someone tells me something, I'll immediately believe it. I will as well. <laughs> if it's something <laughs> I don't know anything about computers, I know how to use a flash drive. Yeah. Um. So if you tell me if you know how to use a flash drive and you also know how to use a computer, and you tell me five reviews will help me, five star reviews will help me. Great. Fucking do it. Yeah. Also, while you're at it, hey, listen. Why don't you follow us on Instagram at Gonna Sound Weird Pod? Yeah. Because we post shit all the time. We do. We post uh, stories that remind you of episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we post funny memes. True. Uh, you know. 
And we're also on Twitter at Gonna Sound Weird. Less active, but if Twitter's your jam, we're still on there. We're still on it. Um, you can contact us there. We've also started a Facebook group. Yeah, we have. And so you can join that on Facebook. And it's literally just, this is Gonna Sound Weird podcast. It's gonna ask you two questions. And you just answer them however you want. And then you can come in there. You post memes. I've posted one meme so far. Mm-hmm. Um, we got, you know, funny stuff. You can post your scary stories. Mm-hmm. Just anything. If you have a case that you're like, this is fucked up. I need to share it with somebody. Post it. Post it. We'll talk about it. You know. And it's not going to show up on your Facebook feed. It's yes. just going to show up in the group. If you're worried about your grandma knowing that you like listening to stories about people getting murdered. She won't know. She won't know. Mm-mm. Unless you tell her. Yeah. Or unless she joins the Facebook group. Yeah. In which, welcome. Welcome, Grandma. Welcome, Grandma. And next week, our episode is Exorcisms. Exorcisms. Which, that just creeps me out to no end. This is true. I'm hoping that nothing attaches to me. I know. During my research. I already wrote my story, and I don't think I've had anything attached yet. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. We don't, we don't have a dog here, so we don't have to worry about it barking. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I think, was that it? That was pretty much it. Uh, oh, also, send us your weird stories if you yes. have any. You can email us at thisisgonnasoundweird at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to reach us if you have, like, something longer. But you can always slide in those Instagram DMs. We will certainly get back to you. Yes. Um, but yeah, if you send us a weird story and we like it, we'll feature it. You know, if you don't want your name attached to it, just let us know. We're happy to call you anonymous. We're happy to call you Betty, even if your name is not Betty. Or we can call you Al. You can call me (laughs) Al. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye.